Let me tell you a story. Podcast number 89. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind. It is a truth universally acknowledged. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. And welcome to Autumn, wherever you live. The Boise area has had a long, beautiful fall, but I know some of you are already sliding on wintry roads. Maybe this podcast will help you through the snow and the slush. Steve will begin episode 89 by continuing the long, short story he started on podcast 88. So I'll keep reading from P.G. Woodhouse's short story, Extricating Young Gussie. I'll read a little bit from last time to refresh your memory. I called after him, but he didn't hear me, so I legged it in pursuit and caught him going into an office on the first floor. The name on the door was Abe Reesbitter, vaudeville agent, and from the other side of the door came the sound of many voices. He turned and stared at me. Bertie, what on earth are you doing? Where have you sprung from? When did you arrive? Landed this morning. I went round to your hotel, but they said you weren't there. They had never heard of you. I've changed my name. I call myself George Wilson. Why on earth? Well, you try calling yourself Augustus Mannering Phipps over here and see how it strikes you. I don't know what it is about America, but the broad fact is that it's not a place where you can call yourself Augustus Mannering Phipps. And there's another reason. I'll tell you later, Bertie. I've fallen in love with the dearest girl in the world. The poor old nut looked at me in such a deuced cat-like way, standing with his mouth open, waiting to be congratulated, that I simply hadn't the heart to tell him that I knew all about that already, and had come over to the country for the express purpose of laying him a stymie. So I congratulated him. Thanks awfully, old man, he said. It's a bit premature, but I fancy it's going to be all right. Come along in here, and I'll tell you about it. What do you want in this place? It looks a rummy spot. Oh, that's part of the story. I'll tell you the whole thing. We opened the door marked waiting room. I never saw such a crowded place in my life. The room was packed till the walls bulged, Gussie explained. Pros, he said. Music hall artists, you know, waiting to see old Abe Reesbitter. This is September the 1st, vaudeville's opening day. The early fall, said Gussie, who is a bit of a poet in his way, is vaudeville springtime all over the country as August wanes, sparkling comedians burst into bloom, the sap stirs in the veins of tramp cyclists, and last year's contortionists, waking from their summer sleep, tie themselves tentatively into knots. What I mean is, this is the beginning of the new season, and everybody's out hunting for bookings. But... What do you want here? Oh, I've just got to see Abe about something. If you see a fat man with about 57 chins come out of that door there, grab him. 
for that'll be Abe. He's one of those fellows who advertise each step up they take in the world by growing another chin. I'm told that way back in the 90s, he only had two. If you do grab Abe, remember that he knows me as George Wilson. You said that you were going to explain that George Wilson business to me, Gussie, old man. Well, it's this way. At this juncture, dear old Gussie broke off short, rose from his seat, and sprang with indescribable vim at an extraordinarily stout chappy who had suddenly appeared. There was a deuce of a rush for him, but Gussie had got away to a good start, and the rest of the singers, dancers, jugglers, acrobats, and refined sketch teams seemed to recognize that he had won the trick, for they ebbed back into their places again, and Gussie and I went into the inner room. Mr. Reesbitter lit a cigar and looked at us solemnly over his zariba of chins. Now let me tell you something, he said to Gussie. You listen to me. Because he registered respectful attention. Mr. Reesbitter mused for a moment and shelled the cuspidor with indirect fire over the edge of the desk. Listen to me, he said again. I seen you rehearse, as I promised Miss Dennison I would. You ain't bad for an amateur. You got a lot to learn, but it's in you. What it comes to is that I can fix you up in the four a day if you'll take 35 per. I can't do better than that. And I wouldn't have done that if the little lady hadn't kept after me. Take it or leave it. What do you say? I'll take it, said Gussie huskily. Thank you. In the passage outside, Gussie gurgled with joy and slapped me on the back. Bertie, old man, it's all right. I'm the happiest man in New York. Now what? Well, you see, as I was telling you when Abe came in, Ray's father used to be in the profession. He was before our time, but I remember hearing about him, Joe Danby. He used to be well-known in London before he came over to America. Well, he's a fine old boy, but as obstinate as a mule, and he didn't like the idea of Ray marrying me because I wasn't in the profession. Wouldn't hear of it. Well, you remember at Oxford I could always sing a song pretty well. So Ray got hold of old Reesbitter and made him promise to come and hear me rehearse and get me bookings if he liked my work. She stands high with him. She coached me for weeks, the darling. And now, as you heard him say, he's booked me in the small time at $35 a week. I studied myself against the wall. The effects of the restorative supplied by my pal at the hotel bar were beginning to work off, and I felt a little weak. Through a sort of mist, I seemed to have a vision of Aunt Agatha hearing that the head of the Mannering Phippses was about to appear on the vaudeville stage. Aunt Agatha's worship of the family name amounts to an obsession. The Mannering Phippses were an old established clan when William the Conqueror was a small boy going round with bare legs and a catapult. For centuries they have called kings by their first names and helped dukes with their weekly rent. And there's practically nothing a mannering Phipps can do that doesn't blot his escutcheon. So what Aunt Agatha would say, beyond saying that it was all my fault when she learned the horrid news, it was beyond me to imagine. Come back to the hotel, Gussie, I said. There's a sportsman there who mixes things he calls lightning wizards. Something tells me I need one now. And excuse me for one minute, Gussie, I want to send a cable. It was clear to me by now that Aunt Agatha had picked the wrong man for this job of disentangling Gussie from the clutches of the American vaudeville profession. What I needed was reinforcements. For a moment, I thought of cabling Aunt Agatha to come over. 
but reason told me that this would be overdoing it. I wanted assistance, but not so badly as that. I hit what seemed to me the happy mean. I cabled to Gussie's mother and made it urgent. What were you cabling about? asked Gussie later. Oh, just to say I had arrived safely and all that sort of tosh, I answered. Gussie opened his vaudeville career on the following Monday at a rummy sort of place uptown where they had moving pictures some of the time and in between one or two vaudeville acts. It had taken a lot of careful handling to bring him up to scratch. He seemed to take my sympathy and assistance for granted and I couldn't let him down. My only hope, which grew as I listened to him rehearsing, was that he would be such a frightful frost at his first appearance that he would never dare to perform again. And, as that would automatically squash the marriage, it seemed best to me to let the thing go on. He wasn't taking any chances. On the Saturday and Sunday, we practically lived in a beastly little music room at the offices of the publishers whose songs he proposed to use. A little chappy with a hooked nose sucked a cigarette and played the piano all day. Nothing could tire that lad. He seemed to take a personal interest in the thing. Gussie would clear his throat and begin, There's a great big choo-choo waiting at the depot. The chappy playing chords. Is that so? What's it waiting for? Gussie, rather rattled at the interruption. Waiting for me, the chappy surprised. For you? Gussie, sticking to it. Waiting for me, the chappy. You don't say. Gussie. For I'm off to Tennessee, the chappy, conceding a point. Now I live at Yonkers. He did this all through the song. At first, poor old Gussie asked him to stop, but the chappy said no. It was always done. It helped to get pep into the thing. He appealed to me whether the thing didn't want a bit of pep, and I said it wanted all the pep it could get. And the chappy said to Gussie, there you are. So Gussie had to stand it. The other song that he intended to sing was one of those moon songs. He told me in a hushed voice that he was using it because it was one of the songs that the girl Ray sang when lifting them out of their seats at Mosenstein's and elsewhere. The fact seemed to give it sacred associations for him. You will scarcely believe me, but the management expected Gussie to show up and start performing at one o'clock in the afternoon. I told them they couldn't be serious, as they must know that he would be rolling out for a bit of lunch at that hour. But Gussie said this was the usual thing in the four-a-day, and he didn't suppose he would ever get any lunch again until he landed on the big time. I was just condoling with him when I found that he was taking it for granted that I should be there at one o'clock, too. My idea had been that I should look in at night when, if he survived, he would be coming up for the fourth time. But I've never deserted a pal in distress, so I said goodbye to the little lunch I'd been planning at a rather decent tavern I'd discovered on Fifth Avenue and trailed along. They were showing pictures when I reached my seat. It was one of those western films where the cowboy jumps on his horse and rides across country at 150 miles an hour to escape the sheriff, not knowing, poor chump, that he might just as well stay where he is, the sheriff having a horse of his own which can do 300 miles an hour without coughing. I was just going to close my eyes and try to forget till they put Gussie's name up when I discovered that I was sitting next to a deucedly pretty girl. No, 
Let me be honest. When I went in, I had seen that there was a deucedly pretty girl sitting in that particular seat, so I had taken the next one. What happened now was that I began, as it were, to drink her in. I wished they would turn the lights up so I could see her better. She was rather small, with great big eyes and a ripping smile. It was a shame to let all that run to seed, so to speak, in semi-darkness. Suddenly the lights did go up, and the orchestra began to play a tune which, though I haven't much of an ear for music, seemed somehow familiar. The next instant out pranced old Gussie from the wings in a purple frock coat and a brown top hat, grinned feebly at the audience, tripped over his feet, blushed, and began to sing the Tennessee song. It was rotten. The poor nut had got stage fright so badly that it practically eliminated his voice. He sounded like some far-off echo of the past yodeling through a woolen blanket. For the first time since I had heard that he was about to go into vaudeville, I felt a faint hope creeping over me. I was sorry for the wretched chap, of course, but there was no denying that the thing had its bright side. No management on earth would go on paying $35 a week for this sort of performance. This was going to be Gussie's first and only. He would have to leave the profession. The old boy would say, Unhand my daughter. And with decent luck, I saw myself leading Gussie on the next England-bound liner and handing him over intact to Aunt Agatha. He got through the song somehow and limped off amidst roars of silence from the audience. There was a brief respite. Then out he came again. He sang this time as if nobody loved him. As a song, it was not a very pathetic song, being all about coons spinning in June under the moon, and so on and so forth. But Gussie handled it in such a sad, crushed way that there was genuine anguish in every line. By the time he reached the refrain, I was nearly in tears. It seemed such a rotten sort of world with all that kind of thing going on in it. He started the refrain, and then the most frightful thing happened. The girl next to me got up in her seat, chucked her head back, and began to sing too. I say too, but it wasn't really too, because her first note stopped Gussie dead, as if he had been pole-axed. I never felt so bally conspicuous in my life. I huddled down on my seat and wished I could turn my collar up. Everybody seemed to be looking at me. In the midst of my agony, I caught sight of Gussie. A complete change had taken place in the old lad. He was looking most frightfully bucked. I must say the girl was singing most awfully well, and it seemed to act on Gussie like a tonic. When she came to the end of the refrain, he took it up, and they sang it together. And the end of it was that he went off the popular hero. The audience yelled for more and were only quieted when they turned down the lights and put on a film. When I had recovered, I tottered round to see Gussie. I found him sitting on a box behind the stage, looking like one who had seen visions. Isn't she a wonder, Bertie? He said devoutly. I hadn't a notion she was going to be there. She's playing at the auditorium this week, and she can only just have had time to get back to her matinee. She risked being late just to come and see me through. She's my good angel, Bertie. She saved me. If she hadn't helped me out, I don't know what would have happened. I was so nervous I didn't know what I was doing. 
Now that I've got through the first show, I shall be all right. I was glad I had sent that cable to his mother. I was going to need her. The thing had got beyond me. During the next week, I saw a lot of old Gussie and was introduced to the girl. I also met her father, a formidable old boy with quick eyebrows and a sort of determined expression. On the following Wednesday, Aunt Julia arrived. Mrs. Mannering Phipps, my Aunt Julia, is, I think, the most dignified person I know. She lacks Aunt Agatha's punch, but in a quiet way she has always contrived to make me feel from boyhood up that I was a poor worm. Not that she harries me like Aunt Agatha. The difference between the two is that Aunt Agatha conveys the impression that she considers me personally responsible for all the sin and sorrow in the world, while Aunt Julia's manner seems to suggest that I am more to be pitied than censured. If it wasn't that the thing was a matter of historical fact, I should be inclined to believe that Aunt Julia had never been on the vaudeville stage. She is like a stage duchess. She always seems to me to be in a perpetual state of being about to desire the butler to instruct the head footman to serve lunch in the blue room overlooking the west terrace. She exudes dignity. Yet, 25 years ago, so I've been told by old boys who were lads about town in those days, she was knocking them cold at the Tivoli in a double act called Fun in a Tea Shop, in which she wore tights and sang a song with a chorus that began... Rumpty tiddly umpty a. There are some things a chappie's mind absolutely refuses to picture, and Aunt Julia singing Rumpty tiddly umpty a is one of them. She got straight to the point within five minutes of our meeting. What is this about Gussie? Why did you cable for me, Bertie? It's rather a long story, I said, and complicated. If you don't mind, I'll let you have it in a series of motion pictures. Suppose we look in at the auditorium for a few minutes. The girl, Ray, had been re-engaged for a second week at the auditorium, owing to the big success of her first week. Her act consisted of three songs. She did herself well in the matter of costume and scenery. She had a ripping voice. She looked most awfully pretty, and altogether the act was, broadly speaking, a pippin. Aunt Julia didn't speak till we were in our seats. Then she gave a sort of sigh. It's 25 years since I was in a music hall. She didn't say any more, but sat there with her eyes glued on the stage. After about half an hour, the Johnnies who worked the card index system at the side of the stage put up the name of Ray Dennison, and there was a good deal of applause. Watch this act, Aunt Julia, I said. She didn't seem to hear me. Twenty-five years. What did you say, Bertie? Watch this act and tell me what you think of it. Who is it? Ray? Oh! Exhibit A, I said. The girl Gussie's engaged to. The girl did her act, and the house rose at her. They didn't want to let her go. She had to come back again and again. When she had finally disappeared, I turned to Aunt Julia. Well, I said. I like her work. She's an artist. We will now, if you don't mind, step a goodish way uptown. And we took the subway to where Gussie, the human film, was earning his 35 per. As luck would have it, we hadn't been in the place ten minutes when out he came. Exhibit B, I said. Gussie. 
I don't quite know what I had expected her to do, but I certainly didn't expect her to sit there without a word. She did not move a muscle, but just stared at Gussie as he drooled on about the moon. I was sorry for the woman, for it must have been a shock to her to see her only son in a mauve frock coat and a brown top hat, but I thought it best to let her get a stranglehold on the intricacies of the situation as quickly as possible. If I had tried to explain the affair without the aid of illustrations, I should have talked all day and left her muddled up as to who was going to marry home and why. I was astonished at the improvement in dear old Gussie. He had got back his voice and was putting the stuff over well. It reminded me of the night at Oxford when, then but a lad of eighteen, he sang, Let's all go down the strand, after a bump supper, standing the while up to his knees in the college fountain. He was putting just the same zip into the thing now. When he had gone off, Aunt Julia sat perfectly still for a long time, and then she turned to me. Her eyes shone queerly. What does this mean, Bertie? She spoke quietly, but her voice shook a bit. Gussie went into the business, I said, because the girl's father wouldn't let him marry her unless he did. If you feel up to it, perhaps you wouldn't mind tottering round to 133rd Street and having a chat with him. He's an old boy with eyebrows, and he's Exhibit C on my list. When I've put you in touch with him, I rather fancy my share of the business is concluded, and it's up to you. The Danbys lived in one of those big apartments uptown which look as if they cost the earth, and really cost about half as much as a hall room down in the 40s. We were shown into the sitting room, and presently old Danby came in. Good afternoon, Mr. Danby. I began. I had got as far as that when there was a kind of gasping cry at my elbow. Joe! cried Aunt Julia, and staggered against the sofa. For a moment, old Danby stared at her, and then his mouth fell open, and his eyebrows shot up like rockets. Julie! And then they had got hold of each other's hands and were shaking them till I wondered their arms didn't come unscrewed. I'm not equal to this sort of thing at such short notice. The change in Aunt Julia made me feel quite dizzy. She had shed her grand dame manner completely and was blushing and smiling. I don't like to say such things of any aunt of mine, or I would go further and put it on record that she was giggling. And old Danby, who usually looked like a cross between a Roman emperor and Napoleon Bonaparte in a bad temper, was behaving like a small boy. Joe! Julie! Dear old Joe, fancy meeting you again. Wherever have you come from, Julie? Well, I didn't know what it was all about, but I felt a bit out of it. I put it in. And Julia wants to have a talk with you, Mr. Danby. I knew you in a second, Joe. It's twenty-five years since I saw you, kid, and you don't look a day older. Oh, Joe, I'm an old woman. What are you doing over here? I suppose, old Danby's cheerfulness waned a trifle, I suppose your husband is with you? My husband died a long, long while ago, Joe. Old Danby shook his head. You never ought to have married out of the profession, Julie. I'm not saying a word against the lates. Uh, I can't remember his name. Never could. But you shouldn't have done it. An artist like you. Shall I ever forget the way you used to knock them with... 
Rumpty Tiddly Umpty A. Ah, how wonderful you were in that act, Joe. Aunt Julia sighed. Do you remember the backfall you used to do down the steps? I always have said that you did the best backfall in the profession. I couldn't do it now. Do you remember how we put it across at the Canterbury, Joe? Think of it. The Canterbury's a moving picture house now, and the old mogul runs French reviews. I'm glad I'm not there to see them. Joe, tell me, why did you leave England? Well, I... I wanted to change. No, I'll tell you the truth, kid. I wanted you, Julie. You went off and married that... whatever that stage door Johnny's name was, and it broke me all up. And Julia was staring at him. She is what they call a well-preserved woman. It's easy to see that 25 years ago. She must have been something quite extraordinary to look at. Even now, she's almost beautiful. She has very large brown eyes, a mass of soft gray hair, and the complexion of a girl of 17. Joe, you aren't going to tell me you were fond of me yourself. Of course I was fond of you. Why did I let you have all the fat in Fun in the Tea Shop? Why did I hang about upstage while you sang Rumpty Tiddly Umpty A? Do you remember my giving you a bag of buns when we were on the road at Bristol? Yes, but do you remember my giving you the ham sandwiches at Portsmouth? Joe, do you remember my giving you a seed cake at Birmingham? What did you think all that meant, if not that I loved you? Why, I was working up by degrees to telling you straight out when you suddenly went off and married that cane-sucking dude. That's why I wouldn't let my daughter marry this young chap, Wilson, unless he went into the profession. She's an artist. She certainly is, Joe. You've seen her? Where? At the auditorium just now. But, Joe, you mustn't stand in the way of her marrying the man she's in love with. He's an artist, too. In the small time. You were in the small time once, Joe. You mustn't look down on him because he's a beginner. I know you feel that your daughter is marrying beneath her, but how on earth do you know anything about young Wilson? He's my son. Your son? Yes, Joe. I've just been watching him work. Oh, Joe, you can't think how proud I was of him. He's got it in him. It's fate. He's my son, and he's in the profession. Joe, you don't know what I've been through for his sake. They made a lady of me. I never worked so hard in my life as I did to become a real lady. They kept telling me I had got to put it across, no matter what it cost, so that he wouldn't be ashamed of me. The study was something terrible. I had to watch myself every minute for years, and I never knew when I might fluff my lines or fall down on some bit of business. But I did it, because I didn't want him to be ashamed of me though all the time I was just aching to be back where I belonged. Old Danby made a jump at her and took her by the shoulders. Come back where you belong, Julie, he cried. Your husband's dead. Your son's a pro. Come back. It's 25 years ago, but I haven't changed. I want you still. I've always wanted you. You've got to come back, kid, where you belong. And Julia gave a sort of gulp and looked at him. Joe, she said in a kind of whisper. You're here, kid, said old Danby huskily. You've come back. Twenty-five years. You've come back, 
and you're going to stay. She pitched forward into his arms, and he caught her. Oh, Joe, 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 she said. Hold me. Don't let me go. Take care of me. And I edged for the door and slipped from the room. I felt weak. The old bean will stand a certain amount, but this was too much. I groped my way out into the street and wailed for a taxi. Gussie called on me at the hotel that night. He curvetted into the room as if he had bought it and the rest of the city. Bertie, he said, I feel as if I were dreaming. I wish I could feel like that, old top, I said. I took another glance at a cable that had arrived half an hour ago from Aunt Agatha. I had been looking at it at intervals ever since. Ray and I got back to her flat this evening. Who do you think was there? The mater. She was sitting hand in hand with old Danby. Yes. He was sitting hand in hand with her. Really? They are going to be married. Exactly. Ray and I are going to be married. I suppose so. Bertie, old man, I feel immense. I look round me and everything seems to be absolutely corking. The change in the mater is marvelous. She is 25 years younger. She and old Danby are talking of reviving fun in a tea shop and going out on the road with it. I got up. Gussie, old top, I said, leave me for a while. I wouldn't be alone. I think I've got brain fever or something. Sorry, old man. Perhaps New York doesn't agree with you. When do you expect to go back to England? I looked again at Aunt Agatha's cable. With luck, I said. In about ten years. When he was gone, I took up the cable and read it again. What is happening? It read. Shall I come over? I sucked a pencil for a while and then I wrote the reply. It was not an easy cable to word, but I managed it. No, I wrote. Stay where you are. Profession overcrowded. I'm reading from Winds of Wyoming, beginning in the middle of Chapter 28. Mike slouched in the passenger seat of Clint's pickup. After they'd driven down to the road, he climbed into Clint's truck to wait for the sheriff's deputy. His hat in his lap and his head against the seat back, he wondered if his life would ever be normal again, or his pulse, which still buzzed with the aftershock of a bullet whizzing past his ear. I didn't try to shoot back. Clint, who'd landed in cactus when he dropped behind a boulder, picked at the barbs in his fingers. They caught us off guard, Mike said. We should have chased him. We did. Yeah, all the way to the top of the hill, in time to see the ATV disappear into the woods. Mike ran his hand through his hair. We were on foot, Clint. No match for an ATV. Clint smacked the door panel with the side of his fist. If that deputy ever gets here, what'll he do? Take more pictures to bury in some file cabinet? This has gone on all summer long. Yeah, too long. I'm thinking we need to do some sleuthing of our own. Clint raised his chin. Why did you call the sheriff then? For the record, we need to chronicle each event in case things get really hairy. You expect things to get worse? 
Mike watched a coyote chase a jackrabbit into a pile of rocks and dash between the cracks, poking its nose inside each one. Doesn't appear we're dealing with normal, upstanding citizens. Who knows what could happen next? A white SUV crested the top of the road. Mike and Clint stepped from the truck to wait side by side, hands in their pockets, while the deputy parked his vehicle. Mike grunted when Caldwell got out. Didn't they have any other officers on the force? Clipboard in hand, Caldwell trotted toward them. Better make this fast. I was on my way to do a house search. We have a hot tip we can't let grow cold. A vehicle rattled toward them. The three men turned to watch the pickup pass. The occupants stared straight ahead without a wave of a finger or a tip of a hat. Mike glanced at Clint. He was right about the truck belonging to the Clifford brothers. But what were they up to? What's the problem this time? The deputy's impatience was obvious in his tone. And don't tell me it's those two knuckleheads. They're ancient and as harmless as gnats. After briefly summarizing the situation for the officer, Mike rode up the hill with Clint. Caldwell followed in his department vehicle. Navigating the uneven terrain with one hand on the wheel, Clint glanced at Mike. I got a feeling Caldwell didn't believe a word we said. Welcome to my world. Maybe it was the fact that the Whispering Pines was successful that irked Caldwell. He and his brother had made a short foray into the guest ranch business that ended when a kid fell off a hay wagon and broke his leg. Wouldn't have been a problem if they'd carried insurance, but it ended in a lawsuit that resulted in the state shutting down their operation. They stopped beside the gate at the upper corner of the fence line, checked the whereabouts of the herd, and stepped inside the pasture. Caldwell looked at the wound on the cow, which still oozed blood, and then at the ridge line on the right. You say a shot was fired from above that pasture? Mike pointed. From somewhere near those big rocks. You don't know exactly where? We were facing downhill. Clint's voice held a hint of irritation. When we turned around, he or she was gone. That makes you think it was a bullet. Mike elbowed his foreman, hoping to deter him from slugging Bernie or assaulting him with the sarcasm that simmered beneath his easy smile. We heard the gunshot. We saw the cow fall. Now we see a bullet hole. Feel free to do an autopsy. The deputy checked his clipboard. Where's this dead calf? They secured the pasture gate before tramping up the hill into the trees, where the only sound was that of their boots crunching brittle twigs and brown pine needles. All that remained of the calf, which had been dragged several feet, was an upside-down skull with hair tufts and horn nubs protruding above the eye sockets. The hide was gone, and the spine and leg bones scattered nearby, bits of fresh pink flesh still attached. Mike squatted on his haunches beside the skull. He turned the empty shell over. It reminded him of an angry old man, which was exactly how he felt at the moment. He looked at Clint. Wolves? They must have come while we were down at the road. Clint scanned the clearing. Caldwell snickered. Haven't been any wolves in these mountains in decades. A pack came real close to killing my dog a couple weeks ago. Mike stood. How do you know they were wolves? I shot one. The deputy's eyes narrowed. Wolf kills are illegal in Wyoming. He reached for the handcuffs on his belt. I'll have to arrest you and turn you over to the feds. Federal law allows for self-defense, Mike said. 
I suppose you're going to tell me you and your dog were moseying along, Caldwell smirked, when the big bad wolves jumped out of the bushes and tried to eat you. Clint stepped closer. Mike held up a hand. One of our employees, Kate Nielsen, shot a she-wolf in self-defense when a pack attacked her in the mountains. Nielsen, huh? Caldwell stopped swinging the handcuffs. Sounds like a far-fetched story to me. Were you there? I came along later and finished a job. The wolf was down, but not dead. You call the game warden? Of course. He said they'd been wanting a wolf hide for a display. Well, I'll call him to confirm. Are you sure it wasn't a coyote? Talk to the warden. Caldwell started to ask another question, but Mike shook his head. No more, Bernie. You choose to disbelieve everything I say, so there's no reason for me to answer your questions. For the record, my mom and I have told you the truth every single time we've talked with you, and we've shown you the facts of what's been going on up here. We don't know why we're being attacked, but somebody has it in for us and our bison. Whatever. I'm just doing my job. At the rate you're doing your job, we won't have a herd left. You don't give me much to work with. Alleged stray bullets hit your cows. Wolves allegedly eat your calf which was allegedly killed by a knife-wielding human, like the first one. All you have to offer is a skull and a theory. I can't do anything with that. Then maybe you could look for shoe prints and tire tracks, check out the picture on the computer, dig the bullet out of the bison down there and find out whose gun it came from. And maybe, just maybe, you could trail the ATV. I, I've got more important things to do, Caldwell pivoted and clomped out of the trees. Mike and Clint followed him to the edge of the woods. Before the deputy got in his vehicle, he yelled up the hill at them. If your friend Nielsen shot that wolf, then maybe she's your phantom bison slayer. Ever thought about that? He jumped into the SUV, slammed the door, and charged down the hill, flying over the bumps. Mike let out a long breath. Now there's a logical deduction. She's in a wheelchair. He rubbed his hand across his face. Do I expect too much of the department... That's apparently what Caldwell thinks. Clint shoved his hands into his pockets. When do you want to start playing detective? A few poems by Eugene Shea. This one being Credit Card Getaway. He has 23 credit cards, credit by yards, all overdrawn, but he'll be gone. So long before the first light of day, he's on his way. Creditors cry. He waves goodbye. He hoarded his platinum card where credit's hard, tickets and freight. Tibet is great. This one he called Splat. He opened a flight service in Nome. 30 minutes from Alaska to Rome. An army surplus rocket fired express, but the business proved unsuccessful as the flights were quite stressful and the landings were frequently a mess. The last one is two cowboy poets meet. I'm looking for a place to fish where brookies I can catch and fry when I spot this creek below me from the road that runs nearby. Looks like a fishing place to me, 
If I can get there, I'll bet it's fine. Tough fence, but I see a gate ahead, but on the gatepost hangs this sign. Trespassers, please take note, for we hate to do you harm, but all that don't survive we bury behind the barn. Well, the rhyming's not quite perfect, but a cowboy poet would you know. We could have a lot in common. I think I'll slip in and say hello. I'm about halfway across the meadow when a guy comes out of the trees. He's as big as Samson's brother. His hands hang down to his knees. He's angling across to cut me off, so I'm sort of hesitating. Judging from the shovel in his hand, I guess he must be irrigating. Are you the cowboy poet that wrote the sign on your gate? Well, I'm a cowboy poet too, and I thought your poem was great. I notice he's looking me up and down, like sizing up a steer to guess what it weighs. Nah, my wife, she's the cowboy poet. Me, I just dig the graves. We're going to close out this podcast with a short reading from Lisa Buffalo's devotional collection titled, We Were Meant for Paradise. This one is called Blessing Dance Party. Years ago, I worked with a man who was an avid hunter. During one of his hunting trips, he climbed a tree, tied himself to the trunk, and kept watch. After several hours, his eyes grew heavy and he fell asleep. When he woke, he looked down to discover a plethora of hoof prints circling the base of the tree. I imagine a herd of deer walking up, seeing a large snoring hunter, and response, having a dance party while he slept. Makes me wonder how often in life I've grown weary, closed my eyes, and failed to notice how God was working. The book of James tells us every good thing given and every perfect gift is from our Heavenly Father. God's blessings constantly flow from his throne, but so few pay attention. I want to do better. I'm finding the more I notice God's blessings, the more I see God's blessings. And the more I notice and see, the more grateful I am. And the more grateful I am, the more I notice, which leads to more noticing, seeing, and gratefulness. I can even take my hunter friend's misadventure on another fun twist. Our Heavenly Father is greater than any enemy, and Satan is a defeated foe. So we can be like the deer having a dance party, because the devil is bound and conquered. Even through the difficulties of life, God's goodness and blessing keep on flowing. Pray for eyes to see and to notice the blessings of God, and get ready to dance. And with that, we'll dance out of here. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. 
Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.